we are continuing in our One Another series, uh, different ways that we love one another, that the Bible commands us to, and one of those is to be truthful to one another, be honest to one another. So that's where we're at today. I wonder uh, how many people have seen the show Survivor? Yeah. yeah, more than a few. For those who don't know, it's a reality TV show. Bunch of people, about 20 people, put in an island for a few weeks and they vote each other off over time. Um, and then the last two or three people standing, one of them will be voted the winner and get a million dollars. And the votes come from the players that have been voted off. So um, everyone wants to be there at the end and you want to be friends with the people who are voting at the end. And it's very difficult to do because to actually secure your spot at the end, you've got to be either um, benign and no one thinks you're going to win and they think they're going to be able to sit next to you comfortably, or deceitful. There's a lot of lying in Survivor. It's fascinating. If, the show's gone on for 44 seasons. Whoa. Yeah, and it's still going. And it's fascinating seeing the first few seasons as people try really hard not to lie to each other. And much more recently, where it's just accepted that that's how you're going to go home, not knowing that your name's going to be written down tonight. So it's fascinating. Because even as people started to accept that lying is going to be part of the game, lying is going to be part of succeeding in the game, people, players of the game, hate it. The jury is bitter. Some players will say, oh, I know you had to lie to get there. Well done through gritted teeth. It's, it's a fascinating way to see because we don't, we don't bump up against deception in a relational way every day, I think. Societally, we've accepted that the truth is good, being honest with each other is good, and we don't really lie to each other in overt ways for the most part. But to, so it's a fascinating look at the pain that lying can cause. And one thing that struck me in season, this was years ago, season 16, um, one of the players left the game quite late on. She was voted out, and she said to the other players she'd been voted out, look, I'm really proud of my game. I played an honest game. I didn't say a single lie to anyone. And the other players scoffed. That's not true. It might technically be true. You might not have verbalised an overt lie, but the relationships that you made, the impressions that you gave, the things that you nodded along to, the plans that you made that someone else verbalised, someone else lied on your behalf, you did not play an honest game. I think that highlights helpfully for us that honesty, truthfulness, is not just not verbalising falsehoods, is it? Truthfulness and honesty is rather a vulnerable love. Honesty is a vulnerable love. And I put it like that because we keep coming up to this. We've, we uh, the series started with love one another and how love is the fulfillment of the whole law. Love God and love one another. Jesus said it. Paul said it. And you fulfill all the law by doing that. And so we fulfill the call to honesty. We fulfill the law that says do not lie by loving each other well. And so I want to paint a picture of honesty not as technical, uh, technical rule-keeping, but as vulnerable love. Um, let's do 
Let's look at that passage that Tripoli read for us. Um, if you still have it open in your Bibles, that's great. Ephesians 5. I'm going to read from verse uh, 22. We're commanded, because of Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for you are members one of another. Put off your old self and put on the new. Put off your old self, which is where, among other things, falsehood comes from, and it's deceitful desires, and put on the new, which is to grow in God-likeness, not God-like authority or power, but God-like righteousness and holiness. And one of the ways that will be outworked is in truthfulness. One of the symptoms of godlessness in humanity, of our sinful nature, is our conflicting desires, isn't it? We have our own uh, ambitions that we may be born with, we may be sort of pressed into us from our environment around us, but they conflict with each other, by and large. They're finite resources, they're finite opportunities, they're finite successes in the world. It's a zero-sum game, and I want some. So, of course, falsehood springs from there. And these desires are deceitful, as Paul says. Somehow we expect that these desires will satisfy us, they will give us fulfilment, they will feel, make us feel that our purpose has been met. But it's not true. In a world created by a purposeful God, that's this one, for the people created purposefully will find no purpose apart from what he has for us. And God has created us with a purpose, to belong to him in Jesus, to love God, worship God, delight in God, to show God's love to one another, to the world, and as people see that, to invite them into loving God as well. It's that simple, it's that, that's really all it is, and what that means is for brothers and sisters in Christ, for people who call themselves Christians, people who are in Christ and under Christ, we all share the same purpose. We are all cooperating, we're not to squabble over finite resources, but we're all working towards the same goal, the glory of God, his love known across the world, everyone knowing his goodness, everyone knowing Jesus' stretched out hands and open invitation to belong to him. So, we are to be honest. There's no reason to be dishonest with each other. We are members one of another. Um, John Piper paints an interesting picture as he, as he looks at this passage. He looked at this passage about 40 years ago. Um, if, a, if you're trying to eat with a fork and the eye is lying to the hand about where the mouth is, you might poke yourself in the eye, right? If we are all members of one body, lying to each other, deceiving each other, is deceiving ourselves. And it's to our own detriment and contrary to our purpose. So, because we are members of one body, do not lie to each other, right? 
Now this is a special specific calling to honesty because that is, that is two Christians for other Christians, right? We're united in purpose, we are members of one body, and so do this. Of course, we are to be honest to non-Christians as well. But Paul is just giving here more reason to be especially open with each other. If that makes sense. But of course, to reflect the goodness of God, that also means to put away falsehood, to be honest and truthful, to carry that vulnerable love outside of the church. Or to people who join us in church who aren't Christians, I hope we do have some here today. Um, wherever we go, to be carrying that vulnerable love, the truth of God, that openness that is distinctive. Uh, all right. So I said this will, this will be a bit dynamic. This is where branching paths. So the Bible takes honesty very seriously, and we are going to dig into the implications of that. Uh, that vulnerable love that we are called to is both, it's not just vulnerable, it's also proactive. It's not just a not lying, it's not just a telling the truth when we're told, or when we're asked something, but it's also something that brings out action for each other's benefit and for our own benefit. And those two actions are a confession and correction. We're called to confess to each other, and we're called to correct each other. But uh, before we get there, actually, I, I do want to spend a little bit more time on uh, clarifying do not lie, because one of the questions that kind of comes up in this space sometimes is, uh, are there exceptions? When can I lie? And I think we should spend a little bit of time there. I don't want that to be the focus of the sermon, but we should spend a little bit of time there, right? So in Exodus 1, um, the nation of Israel is in Egypt, having lots of babies, and Pharaoh doesn't like that they're having lots of babies. Oh no, they might rise up against me. So um, midwives, when you deliver baby Hebrew boys, kill them. And the midwives uh, did not. And Pharaoh said, why aren't you killing these baby boys? And the midwives said, Pharaoh, oh Pharaoh, you don't know what these Hebrew women are like. They are vigorous. They have these babies before we even get to them. We don't get there in time to kill them. There is no reason for us to believe that that's actually true. And then, and then God's word in Exodus follows that with, so God blessed them and gave the midwives families of their own, which is like the greatest blessing that we see in the Old Testament is, is to have families of your own, right? So what commentators are really careful to say in this space that this isn't a biblical endorsement of lying. It isn't saying that the lying is sinless. But... Protect life. I mean, come on, right? Sometimes we find ourselves painted into a corner such that the only way out is either harm or to lie. And because we can be uh, in our legalistic approach to truth-telling, have a, have a sort of almost a physio physiological response to having to lie, we can find it impossible to actually squeeze out something that might actually be uh, more loving for someone else. Now, this is life and death in the Bible. 
Most of us don't encounter that kind of situation. And I think commentators are also careful to say, don't extrapolate to just like any kind of awkward situ situation, right? This is specifically life and death. And it is a pity, really, that in the New Testament, we don't have um, Jesus invited to a surprise birthday party. And then the person that the surprise birthday party is for says to Jesus, hey, what are you doing tonight? And then Jesus has to navigate that situation. <laughs> what would Jesus do? We just don't have that, right? So let me tell you another story. Um, real story, fake names. Uh, back in, a friend of a friend of mine in uni was, uh, uh, he was living on campus. Let's call him Bob and his roommate Alex. And he was getting to know Alex. And, and Alex confided him, in him and said, uh, Bob, um, just so you know, I'm not telling anyone else. This is just between us. I'm attracted to men. Keep that between us, please. Now, Bob was an honest guy and, and also a trustworthy guy, or so he thought, and he wasn't going to let this slip. But uh, the next day or so, or later that week, someone else who had gotten to know them both a little bit was like, hey, Bob, you're Alex's roommate. Maybe you'll know. Is Alex gay? <laughs> True story, fake names. All right? And Bob, being 100% honest, said, I do know, and I can't tell you. Bob, I think you just did. Right? And so in Bob's um, strict legalistic approach to honesty, had betrayed the confidence of a friend, hadn't he? I know this is a difficult situation. I don't want to, like extrapolate the life of death stuff to this kind of situation. What I will put out, put out there is this. The friend who was asking about Alex meant one of two things. He meant, hey, do you have the inside scoop? Do you have a secret that you can share with me? Or he meant, because a lot of people are open about this kind of thing, right? Or he meant, as far as you know and is openly available for other people to know, is Alex gay? And in, in Bob's discernment in the moment, he can probably figure out which one was actually intended. And if it is, as far as you know, as far as is openly available for people to learn, is Alex gay, Bob can honestly say, not that I know of. Right? Because if, if this friend wasn't actually asking, he didn't actually intend to ask, for a secret to be uh, shared, for a confidence to be betrayed. On the other hand, if, if in his discernment he can see that this, this person is actually looking to have confidence betrayed, is look, actually looking to unearth a secret, he can say, well, of course, you can't, you can't ask me that, and I can't, if I knew, I wouldn't be able to tell you that. So I'll just put out there that if I'm asking you what you're doing tonight, I'm not asking you if you're going to my surprise birthday party that I don't know about. This is, this, is, this is my handling of the situation. I don't want to say the Bible says for us to approach it this way, okay? The Bible takes honesty very seriously, and I don't want these examples to take us to being, playing fast and loose with the truth. Right? God's Word takes honesty very seriously. 
Proverbs 6 says that God hates, among other things, a lying tongue and a false witness who breathes out lies. Proverbs 12 says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 20:17 says bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. 21 verse 6, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapour and a snare of death. 24 verse 28, be not a witness against your neighbour without cause and do not deceive with your lips. The Bible takes lying very seriously and I do not want to dilute that. I also don't want us in our, in our legalistic attachment to truth-telling in a particular way to make us actually unloving to other people in terms of betraying confidences, Right? Maybe these seem like un uncommon ones. Here's a really common one. Do you know if so-and-so is pregnant? We get a lot of pregnancy in this church. <laughs> we do, and it is up to the pregnant couple when they share that they are pregnant. And so if you hear, and I, I, I try to like add the, the qualifications, I'm not looking to, pri I'm, I'm, you know, but it shouldn't be necessary. Do you know if so-and-so is pregnant? Is, is more of a, it should be a, has it been announced and have I missed it? And not a, can you give me the inside scoop? And so let's, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, answer in that way. Okay, I spent more time there than I wanted to. Um, and no one asked me, asked me to do any differently. I just ran with it. Okay. All that to say is, this honesty we're called to is, it is a call to vulnerable love, not to um, legalistic, technical uh, traps. Let's call them. All right, um, let's look at confessing to one another. 1 John 1 verse 8. Actually, I have it over here. 1 John 1 verse 8. Actually, I'll read verses 5 to 10. This is the message, message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We are called to confess our sins, to take ownership of our sinfulness, to not make a liar of God, but to be, to acknowledge the way that we fall short before God, one of the ways you can look at this is, is confessing our sins is just going to God and say, I, I've sinned in this, this and this way. And that's absolutely where you start, of course. But then in James 5.16, it says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We are also called to have this openness with one another. And I'll tell you what happens when we, when we don't is the church has this perception in the wider culture that it is um, goody-two-shoes, self-righteous, shallow, 
that people put on their Sunday best clothes and their Sunday best smile and their Sunday best personality and their Sunday best version of what happened the last week and not a place where people walk together in genuine relationships with each other. That's, a, that's kind of a common perception of the church from outside of the church, isn't it? And I think what it should be, I think people will see that here as well, I think what it should be is that people come to the church and see real people with real struggles. And by struggles, I don't just mean difficulties put upon them, but difficulties coming out of them, because if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us, right? And we are open with that, and we are shameless with it, because we know Jesus has paid the price for all of us. This doesn't mean we have to tell every single person every single thing. We don't have time for that. We're not asking that of each other. But we should have a posture of vulnerability to each other in the church, shouldn't we? And it is my experience at King's Cross that when I talk with a brother or sister, I hear something of their struggles. I hear something of what they're dealing with. I have an opportunity to pray with them and I have an opportunity to encourage them. And if you're not, if you're not feeling that, if you feel like you're not getting to participate in that, I invite you to just participate in it, to step into it. And the, the, I know the scary thing there is how are people going to respond if I suddenly switch gears and they suddenly see what I'm like and they suddenly see who I am deep down and so that's why this instruction always in the church needs to come with the instruction towards grace. Now, if you're a baby Christian, you haven't been a Christian for a very long time, I might not expect you to have the same depth of wisdom and experience towards things in a godly way that someone has, who's been a Christian for a very long time has, right? But kind of like a, like a first step in Christianity is experiencing the grace of Jesus who died for our sins, I'm imperfect, Jesus died for my sins, I'm saved. And therefore, we should all have that grace for each other. I can say to myself and to anyone and everyone, whether you became a Christian five minutes ago, or you've been a Christian all your life, have grace for the one who confesses to you. Right? Listen kindly. It would be a real pity if someone regretted coming to you and confessing wouldn't it? So this culture of confession is a two-way street and it can be difficult to step into. I'm encouraging us all, grace. We, we, uh, in, if you're in community, one of the community groups, most of us are. You've read in the notes as well. We're invited into this grace at, and this acknowledgement that it's difficult to step into this space. Let's all step into this space. It can be a bit scary. And also, have grace for each other when we stuff up grace. Right? When I come to someone vulnerably and I need their grace, my life doesn't end if they are not gracious to me. I need to be able to forgive them as well. And if you come to them with that grace, that, um, that makes you more free to confess, doesn't it? Now, uh, being really, really practical here, not, like I said, not everyone needs to know every single thing. It's just like, whether it's a matter of time or it's a matter of um, shouldering too many burdens or whatever it is, but if you don't have someone that you can talk to about any little thing you're struggling with, it'd be great to find someone you can, right? And that's going to be a stepping out in faith and that's going to be an asking for grace. But 
we've talked about this before, we need to talk about it every once in a while. If you don't have someone, find someone who you're like, look, I don't have someone that I can just confess anything to. Can we meet up like once a week or once a month or something? Can we have a regular, you and me, and I want to be able to um, confess with you and pray together and tap into this healing that James 5 talks about. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That's for everyone. I'm not looking to guilt anyone into that. I don't want anyone to go like, oh, I feel really bad that I don't have someone to confess to. This is an invitation into, into goodness, isn't it? All right. So, honesty is not lying. It is confessing to each other. That's a proactive honesty, isn't it? And being gracious to each other to receive that proactive honesty. Honesty is also correcting one another. There is, um, in Ezekiel 33, there's this powerful image where God says to Ezekiel, I'm not going to get it word for word, um, if the people of the land select someone to be their watchman and the sword comes against the people of the land and the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, does not warn the people of the land, their blood is on his hands. If he had warned them and they didn't do anything, they didn't do anything about it, it's their own fault, right? But if he doesn't, he knows the danger is coming and he doesn't warn them, their blood is on his hands. Now, this is, this is God saying to his prophet, so therefore speak my words to people, right? But the same applies broadly that we as Christians have the words of eternal life, we have Christ Jesus, and if we're not warning people, then, you know, that's real bad. It's life and death, isn't it? Eternal life and death. But that, that's not where we're going in deep today. We could go in deep another time. This applies on a less life and death scale as well. That you can build someone up, that you can help them to be more effective in their loving of one another. That you can help someone mature in Christ if you see that their course could use some correcting and that you're equipped to correct them. So, we're going back to Proverbs again. Proverbs is so good. When I was in uni, um, I'd read a chapter of Proverbs every day. I was in uni a lot more than 31 days, and there are 31 chapters of Proverbs. I get to the end, and I go back to the beginning again and just do laps. Proverbs is so good. And so Proverbs, you saw um, God hates lying. Proverbs will also show us how to correct each other, or that we should correct each other at least. Um, let's start with... Hang on, I've got them in a better order over here. Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens the face of another. What does that mean? It means that in our, in our engaging with, our, with each other, we should be improving each other. We should be honing each other, doesn't it? All right, let's get in a bit more depth here. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Flattery is, a, is the opposite of correction. It's a very specific kind of lie. It is, no, you're good as you are. In fact, you're better than you think you are, really. And that works ruin, apparently. Um, in fact, obviously, it inflates pride and encourages one to overestimate their situation, overestimate their abilities, and puts them on a path to their own destruction. 
What an awful thing it is to flatter someone. That's not to say it's an awful thing to compliment someone. It's an awful thing to compliment someone falsely. Honor someone truthfully. Don't flatter someone, right? <clears throat> Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Same kind of thing. Proverbs 27.5 and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. And here's, here's the really good meat of it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This, is, this instruction, I feel like, is for rather... This is for the receiver rather than the giver, I think. When you're wounded by a friend's correction, do you see the faithfulness of it? Do you see the blessing of it? Do you see the goodness of it? Or would you rather the kisses of the enemy? Which is, of course, flattery, right? Um, Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favour than he who flatters with his tongue. Rebuke is good, flattery is bad, but also uh, in the moment, the flattery might get the better response. Play the long game. <laughs> Trust in the goodness that rebuke brings about. And Proverbs 27, 14, this is going to contextualise the rest. It isn't actually about flattery or about uh, rebuke specifically, whoever blesses his neighbour with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Whoever blesses his neighbour with a loud, verse, a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Let me make sure I... Yeah. I like to read this as a blessing can be counted as a curse if poorly given. So those rebuke verses, those rebuke your mate, be rebuked, be corrected, are not to say just throw the truth at people and see what sticks. Right? Because a blessing poorly given is a curse. And it's easy to rebuke poorly. It's easy for correction not to land. So rather, because the point isn't to come across as clever, the point isn't to be right, the point isn't to be able to say, I told you so later on, the point is to correct the path of our brother or sister. We need to be careful and thoughtful and intentional about how we offer correction. So let's do, uh, look at some practical tips on how to actually do that. Um, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before pulling out the speck in your brother's eye. Right? Quite a famous image. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking about don't be hypocritical. Don't see yourself as above someone else and ignore you know, your own issues. But he is still saying, take the speck out when you've, when, you've dealt, when you've taken the log out. We're called to be humble and not consider ourselves better than one another. And in really practical ways, this really helps with correction. Last week we looked at humility. Uh, Mark and Robin Sherrill talked beautifully about it and Mark shared this quote about humility being the soil in which all other graces take root. And knowing that I was preaching on honesty today, I was nodding and going, yes, honest, I, like, it's probably generally true, specifically about honesty. Yes, humility is the soil in which honesty actually takes root. 
as knowing that we are not better than others, but it is also making it easier for other people to receive our correction. And it makes it easier for us to receive correction, knowing that we're not above correction. So it's not just a posture of the heart that is communicating that posture, really practically speaking. There was a... No, don't type of that. It's fine. Um, <clears throat> to that end, if you have some correction or rebuke with which to bless someone, come to them um, humbly, come to them in love, in practical ways, show them that you understand where they're at, why they might be in the position that they are, such that they need correction. It's helpful also to communicate how confident you are in their need for correction as well. If this is urgent, communicate the urgency of it. And it will be more impactful and it may be harder to hear. But if it's urgent, communicate that it's urgent. But what that also means is if it's less urgent, or if you're not sure about it, but you just want to make sure that they know this is on the table, that's a humble thing, isn't it? To go, look, I'm not 100% sure this is the way to go. I'm not sure if you've considered this option. Have you considered X, Y, and Z? I personally would find that much easier to receive than a, an uncertain but bold, um, hey, mate, do X, Y, Z instead, right? And hopefully, with the Spirit's help, um, I'll come to the right direction. Um, I'll be able to discern between the two. I can confide in the person who shared with me. I can confide in, confide in others about it, include each other on our journeys, and make the correction. Ultimately, James 3, verse 17 says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And of all the beautiful lists we have of qualities that people have or ways that we can speak or things that we can do in the Bible, this one stands out to me as the one with which we should rebuke each other and correct each other. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And hopefully even when people don't bring all those fruits to the table as they correct us, we have the humility to still receive that rebuke well. All right. Um, let's bring it to a close. Who's seen the show Scrubs? Comedy set in a hospital. Very funny. Um, one episode, the janitor figures out that if he says God is watching to someone, they'll suddenly pivot from a lie to honesty. It's really funny. And uh, the last time he does it, he says, who is this God character? You know, he's like as if he's totally oblivious. But it's fascinating seeing how um, in really what is a godless show... <laughs> in the context that they're in, it's not unrealistic, I think, when you put that kind of pressure on someone, that someone suddenly self-assesses a bit differently and goes, I, I need to own up a bit differently. But that, I think, is usually a guilt response. 
And I'm not calling us to a guilt response. All of this we're going to do imperfectly. Right? When um, John writes that say, if we say the truth is not in us, we deceive ourselves. Oh, no, what do you say? Anyway, when he says we all lie, he's not, lying, he's not writing to an especially young church. He's not making sure that there are no really mature Christians there. It's just the reality, right? That we all fall short. It's the reality that we will um, not correct each other when we should. That when we do, we'll do it imperfectly. That we will not confess what we should. That we'll do that poorly as well. Um, it's, it's the reality that we will sometimes lie, that we will sometimes misrepresent the truth. And I'm not surrendering us to that. I'm saying that this isn't the weight of the law on your shoulders for you to fulfill it such that you're in God's good graces. In Jesus, we are all in God's good graces. If you love Jesus, you're his child. If Jesus is your king, your sins are paid for, yesterday's sins, your first ever sin, the last sin you'll ever do, probably moments before you die. All paid for. So I don't want the janitor's God is watching guilt over us in this. I want an invitation into this goodness that we, can, we are called to bring each other up in maturity in Christ, to encourage each other and build each other up, to be blessings to one another, to love one another. We have united purpose, our unity in Jesus, the glory of God and the good of all people. I want us to grow in freedom to love vulnerably. vulnerably. Grow in understanding the goodness of God's light, which will ultimately reveal everything. And we can live in that freedom now. Enjoy unity with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. We delight in the peace and encouragement found in confessing to one another and having grace for one another. I want us to grow in valuing the blessing of being rebuked and caring to rebuke well in love. It's not in our own strength that we will grow in this, but thankfully, God's Spirit walks alongside us. God's Spirit is in us and growing us in these things. We can trust in His goodness. We can trust that we're not going to stuff things up such that God's plans are ruined. We're not going to ruin someone else by trying to rebuke them well in love, humbly looking to the Spirit for help. We're not going to stuff it all up in our confession. We're not going to stuff it all up by being vulnerable and honest with each other. It's not on us to do it perfectly but we are growing in it and we are called to strive after it because it's good. And it's God's goodness to us.